Very good. Well, we'll begin. Uh, I'll pray in a moment, and we'll start with uh, Luke 16, verse 19. Today we're at the story of the rich man and Lazarus. A really incredible story with about 250 sermons packed in there. And I promise that um, I'm not going to dump them all on you, but it is a great passage of Scripture. And so we'll look at it momentarily. Okay. Great to see you. Let's bow our heads and we'll pray. Father, thank you for this uh, really incredibly beautiful morning. It is so nice and crisp and cool. And uh, just one more reminder of your majesty and your creativity and the beauty of this world. And we're very, very thankful for health and strength that we were able to wake up this morning and get out of bed and put ourselves in front of a device and talk to one another, which uh, for many and my generation is still an amazing thing to think that we could see people who aren't even in Belton and uh, aren't even in Texas, and yet we're able to see one another and talk to one another. And so we thank you for these incredible advancements. And we pray today, Father, for uh, all of us as we study your word, that you will speak to our hearts. And uh, we do pray for a soon end to the coronavirus and that there might be a return to um, what we remember is more normal times, and we pray that will happen soon. And so bless us now. I pray you're blessed upon each person uh, who joins in with this study today. I pray that you'll speak to us from the Gospel of Luke. And we just say to you that we love you and adore you, and we are a very, very grateful people for all of your blessings. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're at chapter 16, verse 19 of Luke. So let me read the story of the rich man and Lazarus. And then we will um, we'll spend a few minutes talking about it, okay? So are you ready? Here we go. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. That's a pretty rugged picture, isn't it? The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. It's a picture of what we call heaven. In Hades, or hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. I left out a very important part. The rich man died. The, the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, or hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. That's a vivid description. And the fact that he was in such torment that he would have been content to have had just a cool water-covered finger, touch his tongue. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, 
that I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. There's a saying, you know it, misery loves company. Well, maybe sometimes in our earthly experience, we found that to be true, but not true here. This brother who was lost in his sin and tormented in hell does not want his brothers to experience the same thing. For I have five brothers. Please warn them. I don't want them here in a manner of speaking. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Isn't that interesting? Verse 31, he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, we would think, okay, you put somebody up from the dead in front of me, and I'm going to believe every word they say, but that's not true. How do we know that? Jesus arose from the dead, and many choose not to believe it or not to believe anything he says. Well, okay, let's look at at, at these verses. We find there are two uh, two main there are two people that we're introduced to in verses 19 and following. There's a rich man who apparently, according to the description, um, enjoyed his luxury, but cared not anything about the poor man who was at his gate, apparently made no effort at all to assist him, just let him stay there when no doubt he had excess food and, and could have at least given him some food, but he didn't. And so we have... The rich man and we have Lazarus. And in the rich man and Lazarus, we find two bases for living. Lazarus is in poverty and the rich man lives in opulence. And we are introduced not just to his home and and a gate and a poor man outside the gate, but we're introduced to two distinctive places in eternity. We're introduced to Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom or we would call it heaven, and we're introduced to hell, or as the text says, Hades. There are, well, before I move on to the two petitions, think about it. Think about what's happening in hell. We we hear what the Bible says about hell. Nowhere is it any more vividly described here except perhaps for the book of Revelation. And it's a place of torment. Um, I, I don't know what would convince a person to not to not spend eternity there, except that some don't know about Jesus, but some do, and they still reject him. Um, it's hard to get our minds around that sometimes. Would anybody? if they really knew what hell was like, willingly choose to go there? Apparently. But that is a motivating factor for us in our evangelism and missions work. We who are believers don't want anybody to go there. And so we share the gospel in hopes that people will follow Christ. I will tell you as a kid, um, the thought of hell was a, deep motivator for me in coming to Christ. 
I knew that Jesus loved me. I knew he died on the cross for me. I knew I was a sinner in need of a savior and I knew I needed to repent. And the vivid thought of two eternities, one in heaven or one in hell. And to me, the thought of spending eternity in hell was awful. I, I didn't want that. I don't know how often you think about eternity because we are bound by time and space here. And we generally think of everything having a beginning and an end. For instance, you could say, well, my family and I built a house and we lived in it and we stayed there for 20 years and then we moved. You have a beginning, you have an ending. But eternity, following your death or following the return of Christ, whichever comes first, eternity is going to be spent in one place or another. There's two choices. Heaven. Heaven. And our description of heaven found in scripture is wonderful, amazing place. The greatest thing about heaven is that Jesus is there. There's no sin there. No, no more sin. Ours or anybody else's. You know, we have all suffered because of the sins of others. Now we've also suffered because of our own sin. But we've gone through, everybody in this room has suffered in some way or another because somebody else has sinned. Well, in heaven, there'll be no sin, yours or anybody else's. And the Bible gives us a description of heaven that is just awesome. And so we anticipate being there. But the Bible also tells us enough about hell for us to know, I don't want to be there. And it is a place made by, by God for the, for the devil and his angels. And yet, because of people's rejection of Christ, inexplicably perhaps to us who are believers, they'll spend eternity separated from God in hell. And if the only description we had of hell was right here, if this were the only description we had, it would be sufficient for us to know, I don't want to be there. We find two petitions. Lazarus never says anything. We just know he's he's in heaven. Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom, it just translated several different ways. He doesn't speak in the text, but the rich man does. And he makes two petitions. The first is, please have mercy on me. Please have mercy on me. Just, Father Abraham, dip your finger in water and touch my tongue. Please have mercy on me. But Father Abraham says that it can't happen. No one can go from here to there or there to here. Can't happen. So the rich man then thinks of his five brothers. And he says, please go and and speak to my brothers. I don't want them to come here. And Father Abraham says, hey, listen, they've got the scripture. Let them believe the scripture. As he talks about the the prophets, um, Moses, the prophets. Well, Moses and the prophets aren't 
on the face of planet Earth as these words are spoken. So what's he referring to? He's referring to Scripture. The words of Moses, as we find them in the first five books of the Bible, the words of, of the prophets found in in the Old Testament. And so Abraham says, let them listen to Moses. Let them listen to the prophets. And And the rich man said, no, that's not enough. That's not enough. They need to see somebody rise from the dead. And Abraham says, you know what? If they don't believe Moses and the prophets, they're not going to believe even though someone rises from the dead. And that that references to the one who will rise from the dead soon, and that is Jesus. So there are two problems. So we find two people, two situations, two places, two petitions, and then we find two problems. Uh, At least problems for the rich man. Not a problem for Lazarus, but a problem for the rich man. There is no change of address. No one can go between heaven and hell. Now, nobody in heaven would want to go to hell, but plenty in hell would want to go to heaven. And in very sobering words, Abraham says, nope, you can't go from there to here. And the second problem that we see is people who do not believe the word will not believe God. Because the Bible is the word of God. So it's a very sobering, a very sobering picture. I, I get the, I don't want to read too much into it, but here's what I get as a picture of this torment. Apparently, the rich man can see into heaven and see what he's missing. So not only is he in torment, but he is enabled to see what could have been his had he gone to heaven. There's no evidence that Lazarus is able to see into hell. Um, the Bible's silent on that in this text. And I think leads me to believe that in heaven, because it is a place of pure joy and perfection, we, we will not be able to see into hell. Um, but think of the additional torment of those who perish and go to hell. It's bad enough being there and knowing that you're there for all of eternity and all hope is gone. And then in addition to that, to be able to see what you could have had had you trusted Jesus. That's a sobering thought. Uh, Sometimes folks say, oh, we ought not to talk about hell. Scares people. (laughs) Well, quite frankly, we need to be scared. And we don't need to hesitate talking about hell. That's not the only thing we talk about. That would definitely be uh, inappropriate. But we do need to very clearly let folks know there, there are only two places where people will spend eternity. One is heaven and one is hell. You go in one place or the other. Choose Jesus. Trust Jesus. Now, the rich man's heart is reflected in his handling of his wealth. And the implication of that is selfish and self-centered. So the rich man's heart is reflected in his handling of his wealth, and so is ours. It's a reflection of our heart. Now, that's true whether you are, like this man, wealthy, or whether you are of modest means. Either way, 
the way you handle what you have is a reflection of um, your heart. So we think about that. Are we faithful stewards of what God's entrusted to us? Are we gracious and generous and kind? If so, that's a reflection of your heart. If not, that's also a reflection of your heart. So um, an amazing an amazing story that Jesus tells about the rich man and Lazarus. Um, lots of uh, things to, that could be taught or preached on there. A description of heaven, a description of hell, but clearly how to go to one and going to the other and never crossing between the two. Uh, also challenges generosity, which you know, as a reflection of your heart in keeping with some of the context of what Jesus has been teaching in Luke. But this is a story that does us well to remember for what it teaches us about eternity. Now, when we come to chapter 17, we're going to shift a bit as Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. Now, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We know that. He's on his way to Jerusalem where he will die, be buried, and arise from the grave. Along the way, he teaches people about the kingdom of God in the villages that by which he goes on his way to Jerusalem. And along with that, he performs miracles that authenticate his teaching. So we're going to see both of those, the teaching and the authentication, in chapter 17. So the first 10 verses I've entitled, A Command to Forgive. A Command to Forgive. As we think about these verses, ponder in your mind. Is there someone that I have refused to forgive, but I need to do it? Um, I don't even have to say I need to do it. Is there someone I need to forgive? Without anybody telling you, you know what you need to do. Scripture's clear. Now, is that easy? Sometimes it's very difficult. Very difficult. In fact, so difficult that when Jesus proceeds through this story, his disciples are going to say, increase our faith. We, we can't do it. Um, we understand that. You may be thinking of someone right now who has really, really hurt you very, very badly. And that person is without excuse. No one is saying that what they did was right. But what Jesus says is, in your heart, you need to forgive. So how in the world does all that happen? Well, let's look at what what we read. Verse 1, Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to stumble are bound to come, but woe to anyone through whom they come. It would be better for them to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to stumble. 
children or young in the faith. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. I might add kindly and gently, but rebuke them. And if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. Now, this is when the disciples hearing that, maybe even a couple of them shaking their head, said, Lord, increase our faith. I love that open admission. What Jesus has just said to them is mighty hard to do. And when he uses as an illustration of the infinity of forgiveness, when he says, if they sin against you seven times in one day and they come back every time and say, I repent, forgive them again. (laughs) And that's when the disciples say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. Lord, increase our faith. I can't do it. That's a good, honest admission. So in verse 6, Jesus said, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. So we get a word picture here of, of, of faith. And remember this about faith. If you don't remember anything else, remember this about faith. The important thing is not the amount of faith that you have. The important thing is the object of your faith. Got it? If you have the faith as big as a grain of mustard seed and that faith is in Jesus, that's good. That's enough. He will increase your faith. It's not the amount of faith, it's the object of your faith. I think I read a well-known illustration of that that I've used many times. It is um, picture yourself in January being in uh, Minnesota or being in Texas at the same time. So all of a sudden, it's gotten pretty cold in Texas, one of those rare cold spells that we have. And so there's a there's a thin sheet of ice over um, over the lake. And so you see it, and you say, oh, man, I'm going to just walk right across the lake. And you have all the faith in the world, and you step out there, and what's going to happen? You're going to break the ice, and you're going to sink in the frigid water. Let's go to Minnesota in January, and you see ice on the lake, and it's thick as it can be and solid as concrete, and you say, oh, I'm I'm a little shaky, I'm scared, but I just have a little faith, but I'm going to go ahead and stick my toe on it and try to walk across, and you do, and you don't have any problems. Why? The object of your faith is what's important. So having said that, Jesus it illustrates that by the mustard seed uh, and the tree. And then in verse 7, he says, Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, Come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, Prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we're unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. 
Well, that's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting paragraph there. So Jesus is talking about forgiveness, and this text is a command to forgive. And uh, he talks about a stumbling block. We all face that. He's talking about temptation. That's what he's talking about, temptation. And we all face it. It's a fact of life. Temptation does not equal sin. Temptation, rather, is a pull to sin or a lure to sin. Then he says, woe to the one who is the stumbling block that causes someone else to sin. So the message to us, don't play the role of tempter. You will face judgment for that, so don't play the role of tempter. Better, he says, to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around your neck. That's the lesser thing than to face God's judgment. So he has their attention. And in verse 3, he says, be on, be on your guard. And here's the objective he's trying to reach. If your brother or sister sins, rebuke them and forgive them. And then he goes on from there, even seven times in one day. Repent and repent. I repent, then forgive them. Now that's hard. And that's why the disciples say, help me grow my faith. I don't have enough faith to do that, Jesus. I, I and you know, the disciples may have been, this may have been in real time for them because they may have had somebody they were thinking of. Each one of them may have had somebody they were thinking of. I can't forgive him. I won't forgive him. But Jesus says, yes, you must. You must forgive them. So grow my faith. And he gives an illustration in verse six. It's a hyperbolic illustration. If, if with a little faith, we can move a tree then surely you can forgive those who sin against you. And in verses 7 through 10, he calls for obedience. Now, in in verses 7 through 10, um, we find some folks who are filled with pride when they do obey and forgive, and basically they want a medal for what they're supposed to do. And The picture here he gives is of a master and a servant, master-servant relationship. The servant does not come in and sit down at the table with the master and eat a meal with him. Uh, The master doesn't thank him for doing what he's supposed to do. Jesus commands us to forgive, and when we do, don't expect a medal for doing what you're supposed to do. We've simply done our duty. Remember the importance of forgiveness, as Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, when he said in verse 14, if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. That is a purposeful illustration of the gravity of forgiveness or unforgiveness. Hurt people hurt people. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Hurt people hurt people. Forgiven people forgive people. We have been forgiven, so we are to forgive others. And believe me, from the bottom of my heart, I'm telling you that's hard, and you know it's hard. 
you can think of people who've really wounded you. May have been recent or you may be still holding on to a grudge from 40 years ago. What does Jesus say we're to do? We're to forgive. Now, we can sit here and we can say, I am not going to do it. Well, just understand, um, that's a grave thing for a Christian to say. And Jesus speaks very harshly against it. So I draw down to this point. Is there someone you need to forgive? Go and do it. Be a faithful servant. Do what you know you're supposed to do as a believer in Christ. And God will go with you. Now you say, well, it's too late. The person I needed to forgive is dead. Well, then remember all sin is against God. So ask God to forgive you or that grudge holding, or your unwillingness to forgive, and ask him to help you not to do it again. Well, um, it's amazing when we think about Jesus. Uh, so many people enjoy focusing on the gentle side of Jesus, the, the gracious, sweet Jesus, but they don't want to think about the direct hard sayings of Jesus. We got to see them both because they're all true and they're all applicable to us. And so when Jesus says you're to forgive and don't stand around expecting me to give you a medal for doing what I've told you to do, just forgive and be obedient, do what you're supposed to do. Okay. All right, Lord, I'm going to do that. And I hope somebody may be saying that today. Now, I love the story that we unpack in verse 11 as uh, Jesus has an opportunity to encourage gratitude. Uh, He's in Gentile territory. Look at verse 11. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. So he's entered into Gentile territory on purpose, headed to Jerusalem. And he gets a request from 10 lepers, L-E-P-E-R-S, not leopards, but lepers. So look at it, verse 12. As he was going into a village, 10 men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. They already knew who he was. The word had spread. No doubt the word had spread. He's been known to heal lepers. When he saw them, he said, go show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Now, don't miss the power of that statement. Go and show yourselves to the priests. That when a person was cured from leprosy, which almost never happened, the only way they could re-enter society and their family was to go to the priest and he would examine them and say, yep, you're cleansed. So notice here, these 10 guys still have leprosy. Jesus says, go show yourselves to the priests. Maybe they looked at their hands, their body, their feet and thought, maybe they thought, "Why? Wow, what am I going to go to the priest for? I'm still, I've still got leprosy. 
But as they turned and made their way to wherever the priest was, what happened? They were cleansed. So it was only in that step of obedience that they found cleansing. Now, notice verse 15. One of them, when he saw he was healed, came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him, and he was a Samaritan. You ever felt like nobody's grateful for the things I do? Have you ever felt that way? I've done all, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and nobody ever says thank you. Well, you know, we're not serving to be thanked. We're serving because it's the right thing to do. So so Jesus asked, here's one out of ten. You know, even I can do the math on that. That's ten percent. One out of ten. Jesus said, we're not all ten cleansed. Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. I love, I love that story. So here we have the request of Tim. Leprosy is a horribly disfiguring disease. It is sometimes contagious, although in those days it was felt to be always contagious. Now we know that unless you have a lot of contact with a, a person with leprosy, you're, you're probably not going to get it just by one touch or being breathed on. But in those days, the assumption was you, you're, you're around a leper, you're going to become a leper. That's why they had to stay far away. They were the outcasts of society, and they were respectful. Now, here's the interesting thing. Nine of these ten are children of the covenant who have purposefully gone into Gentile territory because they knew Jesus was going that way. One of them was a Samaritan. And so they are isolated from their families, isolated from their work, isolated from from religion, and they shout what they're supposed to shout when they see people coming, unclean, unclean. That would give people an opportunity to go to the other side of the road or, or whatever they needed to do. And because of the pain of the spiritual pain of what they're going through, they call out for mercy. Now, you know, one of the problems with leprosy is that in your extremities, you have no feeling. And so some have said it is a disease that's horrifying, but not all that physically painful. But lepers can get deep infection in their extremities because they do things with their things with their feet or their hands and don't realize they've hurt themselves and the infection comes and then they're they're in trouble. So they're at a respectful distance. They ask Jesus for cleansing and Jesus he does it, but he doesn't say you're healed. He doesn't say be clean. He doesn't say, look at that, boys, the leprosy's gone. He just says, go to see the priest so you can re-enter society. And when they turned and began to make their way toward the priest, until they took that first step, nothing happened. But when they took the first step, they were cleansed. And the act of 
turning to obey Jesus brought his healing on their bodies. Now, what happened? Nine kept going. One, in humility and gratitude, turned back and came to Jesus and said, thank you. Thank you. So, an expression of gratitude. Why not all of them? Don't know. If, if in life we are blessed, and we are, make it a determination of your heart that the two words that come easiest from your lips are these two words. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and thank you to other people who have blessed you. So, um, it's ironic that the Samaritan is the one who came back and and gave Jesus thanks. I guess it it can be serve serve as a picture of Jesus' inclusiveness of, of the Gentiles. But what we find with this healing is that another illustration of the social rejects of society often being praised because of their faith. And that was true in the life of this leper. Well, we come to verse 20, and we're going to find some teaching on the coming kingdom, the kingdom of God. So let's look at verse 20 through 37. Remember, the kingdom of God is a community of people who repent and are forgiven and forgive. The kingdom of God, those who hear about Jesus and follow him. That's the kingdom of God. Now, some were thinking in that day the kingdom of God in terms of being a physical kingdom with a throne in Jerusalem and like, like the Davidic kingdom. But Jesus' teaching about the kingdom of God is that it is spiritual. So let's see how that rolls out here in verse 20. Once on being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. In other words, it isn't physical, it's spiritual. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is here. It is in the person of Jesus and his followers. Then he said to his disciples, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. People will tell you, there he is or here he is, Do not go running off after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like the lightning which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so also will it be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, drinking, marrying, and being given in marriage up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, but the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down to get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. 
Whoever tries to keep their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life will preserve it. I tell you, on that day, on that night, two people will be in the one bed, and one will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together. One will be taken and the other left. Where, Lord, they asked, he replied, where there is a dead body, there will the vultures gather together. Okay, there's a lot there in there, so we'll get part of it done. The kingdom of God is a community of people who repent and experience the forgiveness of Jesus. The Pharisees, verse 20 and 21, the Pharisees can't see it. They can't see it. They are seeking a physical on-earth kingdom. It is, however, a spiritual kingdom, and it's already here. Jesus says it's already here. It is wherever the gospel goes and people respond, there is the kingdom of God. However, verses 22 to 25, the disciples see it. What do you mean they see it? Because they see Jesus and they are his followers. The disciples see it. So Jesus says, don't believe people when they say, there's the kingdom of God. There's the kingdom of God. He's over here. He's over there. No, the kingdom of God's already here. It's in the person of Jesus and those who follow him. A lot of cults through the ages have majored on that by saying, well, the Messiah's come, and and here he is, or the Messiah's over there, or read this book and you'll know who the real Messiah is. Jesus says, no, don't believe that. He's already here because I'm already here. The coming kingdom will be like lightning that fills the entire sky. Jesus says, it will be plain to see Christ's coming will be so glorious and obvious, it will petrify the world, and the world will be in awe at the blessed hope of of the church, which is what Titus calls in 2.13, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearance of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here is what happens before the coming of Christ. Verse 25, he must first suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. So before any of this can happen, Jesus says, I will have to suffer. And he's on his way to Jerusalem to do that very thing, to die on the cross for our sins. Now, the world will not expect the coming of the Son of God, the return. They will not expect it. The world will carry on. Uh, Judgment arrives. It's too late. God's judgment is real, and there is no escaping it. And so Jesus is as plain as he can be in saying, the kingdom of God is here. It's found in me and those who who follow me. And those who miss it will perish. Where the corpse is, there also will be vultures gathered. Simply a way of saying that's the final judgment. Be ready. Be ready. It is coming. It is inevitable. Christ is coming again. Okay, now, um, we are going to start next time with with chapter 18. So, friends, we've got two more weeks. So, next week we're going to start with chapter 18. We're going to go as far as we can. Then the next week we're going to go as far as we can. And we'll just see where we end up. Okay. So we're, we'll have a, a break at the end of this month from from tune-up, and we'll see what happens uh, as, as time unfolds. 
when your new pastor comes, um, you know, you need to give him a little space to do what he feels led to do. Um, he may or may not want to do tune-up, folks, with, and we've got to give him the latitude to do what he feels led to do. But I will say to him when I meet him, um, some of the greatest people in the world are the people who attend tune-up, and if you choose to do it, they will bless your socks off because that's what y'all have done for me. You've blessed my socks off. So I love you. Okay, let's pray. And then if there's some closing comments you want to make, you can do that. And we'll be back here next week, same time, same station, ready to go again. Father, thank you for your precious word. Thank you for the gospel of Luke. We have learned a lot in our weeks together. We're amazed at this great gospel and all that it teaches us about Jesus and and about the availability of salvation for us through Christ. So bless each person on the, on the screen today and encourage their hearts. And we'll look forward to being back together next time and what you will teach us from this great gospel in Jesus name. I pray. Amen.